Paramedic 61, District 6. Stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, the summertime is in full bloom, and I want to thank everybody for joining us on Inside EMS. This is the only podcast that takes you inside EMS. And you guys are doing awesome. Thank you for going over iTunes and rating our shows. We really appreciate that. And and more and more, we're starting to get a, a bigger, broader fan base. We're hearing from people overseas. We even got an email uh, yesterday in another language. We'll have to have it uh, interpreted for us. Hopefully, they're probably saying Chris is the best and you know who that partner is. But uh, let's go ahead and bring him in now. The Ted Nugent of EMS. Here he is, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on? Man, I'm just trying to stay dry in our in our typical summertime weather pattern. Uh, thunderstorms every afternoon, and and uh, when it happens, uh, people lose the ability to drive. So, I've been dodging mud puddles and uh, stupid motorists most of the afternoon. You know, you got to just think about that, man. That's that's job security. People get crazy. They don't uh, obey the speed laws when it's wet, and uh, you know, as long as uh, nobody gets killed, I think it's a good day, right? Yeah, nobody gets killed, especially me. That's, That's right. A good day. <laughs> so, it's a big, big, big difference from when I was a, a young paramedic when I used to think, boy, if somebody just has a common courtesy to get killed That's right, right now, I could go do something. That's right. What are they thinking? But, you know, and that comes up with a good point of, of doing things and helping our patients. You and I, you know, we've had this discussion before, and let's go and introduce mm-hmm. it to our folks. You know, we've, we've talked about protocols, and we've talked about what they mean, and we've talked mm-hmm. about that they should be followed. And, and you and I have kind of gone back and forth with that, and, and we're going to bring an expert in here in a little bit and kind of help us with this debate. But why don't you go ahead and give me your side to this, and uh, then I'll let you introduce our guest. Well, my approach to, to protocols has evolved over the years. Uh, it used to be I, I, I thought the protocols were the Bible, and, and you had to follow them, so therefore I wanted the most complete Bible I could find. But uh, I, my, my views on protocols have evolved over the years and the fact that into uh, the position that they're not really protocols, they are clinical treatment guidelines, and the best ones leave a lot of room for clinical judgment and wiggle room and, and on the part of the, uh, the treating paramedic on how stringently those protocols are followed. Uh, now, I know you take a different view on the subject, so we've got our professional mediator, the man, the myth, the legend, Brian Bledsoe, to uh, to give us his views on the subject. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's good to be here. You know, finally, you know, we, we've kind of debated this, uh, Doc, over a, a couple of years now, Kelly and I, uh, how successful our show was. But I think now we can say we finally made it. Having you on the show, it's awesome to have you here. Oh, thanks. You're, uh, you're giving me too much on that. And, you know, just for everybody out there, I'm sure if you know anything about EMS, you've probably picked up one of those textbooks, uh, one of those uh, references that are guiding your EMS career written by Dr. Bledsoe. So, Doc, h- how many books have you uh, authored at this point in your career? Well, I know we've got uh, like 1.1 million in print. Um, in terms of original titles, I, I don't know, 30, 30-something there. Amazing. Uh, the, the paramedic books are translated into Korean and some other languages and... I don't know. I lost track. 
Awesome. Know. That one point one million is a good number to stick with. So, but he's Kelly, the, he's the Louis Lemoore. He's the Louis <laughs> Lemoore of EMS textbook publishers. That's right. Or textbook authors. We've got the this, Ted- is, this isn't quite as lucrative as what he does. So. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, Kelly, let, let me go ahead and let you start off. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and give you. You're right. We do have a different opinion on this. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first opportunity to go and start us off. All right, Brian, my question is, as a medical director, what is your view on acceptable protocol deviation? Where's the dividing line between one of the medics you supervise exercising clinical judgment and one of the medics you supervise medically freelancing and doing his own thing? Where where do you cut, uh, make the cutoff? Well, I mean, we do have that, that that, that kind of falls out in the QI process. But in the seven, eight years I've been out here in Las Vegas, I've never had an issue where it didn't do anything benefit patient care. Fact is, out here it's set up so it's handled uh, at the pre-medical director level. You know, it, it it comes back to the fundamental argument. You know, and I actually, you know, on with you on this. These should be clinical guidelines. Um, you know, if a paramedic decided to give fentanyl instead of dilaudid or whatever we're carrying or use the ketamine instead of Versed, you know, uh, and there was some criticism of it, I'll ask them what was their thinking and, uh, and, and generally, generally go with it. I mean, it, it's the same way I approach the residents who, you know, are finding their own way in terms of clinical decision making. Let me do a follow-up question, Chris. Right. So, in, in your view, what, which is uh, which is the greater sin? Is it is uh, uh, are you okay with with uh, omission uh, of certain protocol steps or substitutions? Uh, you know, according to clinical judgment, uh, and are you more uh, are you take a dimmer view of uh, just um, doing something that may not be in the protocols but is well supported by research and, and medical theory. You know, you okay I'm with actually, that sort of deviation? Yeah, I'm for, I'm for the latter. I mean, uh, the way we do protocols in this country is enigmatic. Um, yeah. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of that movie, A Few Good Men, you know, where uh, uh, the Tom Cruise character handed the, uh, the the operating guidelines to the uh, enlisted man to go show us where yeah. it says to get to the mess hall. You yeah. know, and as we look at protocols, and some of the protocols you see across the country that, that everybody thinks are great, and some of them are, I mean, look at Wake County, you know, how far do you go back to repeat a damn EMT or paramedic book? You know, and what yeah. what is the line of demarcation between a clinical guideline, you know, and, and a protocol. And the worst thing that ever happened were these damned uh, uh, Visio office flow sheets uh, that assuming mm-hmm. that medicine is a linear endeavor. And I can certainly say that there's absolutely nothing linear about the practice of medicine, especially emergency medicine, and that, of course, translates to EMS. One of the things you always hear, Doc, though, is, is as you start to think about this and, and you know, in the scenario that Kelly gave and, and uh, you know, your response to that, a lot of times you're going to hear people say, if we're deviating from the protocols, we're now practicing medicine ourselves. And, you know, we operate under the medical director's license. You know, he gives us the opportunity to practice under those. I mean, so h- how do we, how do we, I don't want to say argue that fact, but how do we reinforce that fact? Or how do we, you know, say that that's just a myth in, in the process of treating our patients? Well, you know, in our world, we've got nurse practitioners and, and PAs, 
you know, functioning under our license every day. You know, it, it fundamentally comes back to this. Um, EMS is still a trade. You know, uh, if, if, you, if you try to define what is a paramedic, what is an EMT, somebody's going to quote a, a document from the Department of Transportation and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, for me to train emergency medicine residents, we are given six core competencies, which are general guidelines of, of what that doctor should be like when they graduate after their three or four years. And it really is up to the program to determine how to get there. EMS, though, has always relied on curricula and on competencies. It has always relied on an external entity such as the federal government or the national registry or something like that to determine what the, what the curriculum is. And by the, the, the textbooks become the de facto authority. Um, and you, you can talk to you know, a paramedic and they'll quote one of my books or one of mixed books. And uh, you can talk to our residents and they're going to argue about what Rosen said versus what Tittinelli said versus Vert, you know, and it's 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 like welding, you know. To be a welder, you master, you know, tungsten inert gas welding, wire fed, brazing, you know, different sorts of metals, and you know, even the respiratory therapist, the 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 competency for respiratory therapy is like one paragraph. Yet we have a four hundred page document that's now seven, eight years old, that I'm supposed to write textbooks from. Uh, to be, you know, in the textbooks, well, they, and I've seen this done in court, so look, well, Dr. Bledsoe, on page something of your book, you said this. I know, but that was five years ago, and things have changed, and you have to take it in the context of the whole book. That's, that's this, this, sort of, this sort of thing is what's holding EMS back as a profession. Um, you know, uh, the, the education is certainly part of it, but, you know, protocols. And it's something I've been fighting for the last 10 years. You know, we, we got things improved out here in Vegas, which is very regu regulated. But um, it's got to go the way Kelly's talking about. Otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, the old Dallas Fire, you know, my era, 1970s, give them, you know, two red boxes and one blue box. Yeah. You know that that's I, I'm I feel fortunate to work in a, a system like I do. You know, Acadian is probably not well known for being clinically progressive. I think it's kind of hard to do that with an agency uh, the size of ours. But at the same time, our our local QIC and 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 our medical director is has a, a good attitude toward protocol deviation. What he wants to know is is are you clinically astute enough to justify what you did? Is there medical reasoning for it, and can you doc? Does your documentation reflect that? Now, I'm sure he's not he's not okay with people just out freelancing, but the the first question that is that is asked when we deviate from protocol is, uh, you know, uh, what was your thinking? Um, and they repeated this over and over again in in uh, training sessions. Use your clinical judgment. Just about every protocol that you will read has a little codicil in the front of it that says, you know, these are these protocols are, are intended, not intended to replace clinical judgment. You know, the medic is, is, is at his discretion as to uh, which protocol steps are to be omitted or, you know, words to that effect. Um, the question is, is how, how much leeway is there? Um, like the example I give, here, here's the uh, perfect example from just recently. 
Um, our uh, nitroglycerin dosing protocols are geared toward acute coronary syndromes. They're totally inadequate for, say, acute pulmonary edema and, and acute decompensated heart failure. Um, just not, we're not giving enough nitroglycerin. Now, if I were to uh, um, give the amount of nitroglycerin I wanted to, that's totally outside our protocols. But on the other hand, uh, our medical director allows deviation uh, if it's medically appropriate and you get uh, online medical control orders uh, from your, you know, your accepting physician at the hospital. And that's, that's the work I've done uh, here locally is uh, I've kind of worked at the groundwork for when those situations arise and I need to do something that's not included in my protocol. I know I can call them and get the orders of me. Uh, I just, I don't know how common that ability is in other EMS systems. And from what I, from interacting with people, I would, I would gather that in many states it's uncommon uh, and almost unheard of that you can call and ask for something outside the protocol. Yeah, well, here in Las Vegas, we don't actually do online conversations at all. I mean, the only time really? in the six years I've been here, that I've talked to a paramedic was maybe like they were, you know, exceeding 15 milligrams of morphine and and field death pronouncements, and, that, and that's mainly over yeah. the trauma center. Um, yeah. You know, um, and, and actually one of the best things that happened, at least out here in this system, is the drug shortage. We were able to get yeah. all the meds on the ambulance and kept them on there. Right. So, for example, you know, the protocol may call for midazolam for sedation, However, I had a crew the other day that, that tried uh, some midazolam on an overtly psychotic patient. They went ahead and gave a big dose, I mean, ultimately, of ketamine, 350 milligrams, wow. before the patient came in the emergency department. And, and, you know, was the patient, you know, completely sedate? No, but they were manageable. So it was a yeah. protocol variation. And, 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 and uh, you know, I asked him, what, what, was, what was the thing? He said the, the, the midazolam didn't touch her. Um, you know, we were worried about respiratory issues, and so we went to to, uh, to the ketamine, and made made perfect sense, and it went no further than that. Uh, uh, you know, we we do have uh, mechanisms in play to, to flag things that are, you know, protocol deviations, but most of the time the clinical managers look at them and go, no, it makes sense, or they'll call the medic. And it only in in rare instances is it kicked up to the medical director. You know, it's interesting, as you start to think about it and you picture this as, uh, you know, an opportunity for you really to kind of get outside of those protocols, you know, it does kind of open your eyes. There have been many times where you said, you know, we need to have the ability to do this, and, and this would have been a great way to, to, to make that happen. But but let me ask you this, Doc. So I think that there has to be a paradigm shift of not only paramedics, but to feel comfortable with doing this, but also with medical directors. I mean, I mean, how do you start yeah. this process of saying what's the development to make this happen? Well, actually, I mean, you you, you guys don't have access to the ASEP uh, medical directors list, but there there's a cadre of folks out there that are equal, uh, similar minded to me. You know, Jeff Beeson for one, with uh, Acadian and, and Howie, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, all. All these other guys, so it, they're out there, but you know, probably if the big systems are, are, are primarily in academics, you know, I I like the paramedic that asks me why, 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 you know, because that person is thinking through the through, thinking through the uh, the process of taking care of the patient, as opposed to, gosh, we've done steps A through G and we only got H left, or what are we going to do? 
Um, and, and, and that's, that's what I like. And in what other medical profession do you have protocols? I mean, we have clinical pathways and you have treatment, uh, you know, treatment best practices, but say, for example, I mean, we have a, every hospital does a sepsis or community acquired pneumonia pathway. You have certain things you have to hit the, you know, antibody coverage, but say, you know, say I choose our, our two drugs for community-acquired pneumonia or, or, or uh, uh, ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Well, you know, what if I get some information of the patient that they've had been out of the country or they have uh, AIDS or something like that? I change the drug because my clinical judgment tells me that. Uh, and I'm not reported any sort of medical director or authority. Uh, if I make a bad decision, you know, and there's a bad outcome or there's a complaint, I have to answer to it. But you're given the chance to use the literature and use prevailing practices to defend what you do. You know, there, there's, a, there's some stuff going on back home in Texas where, you know, some of the, they're just doing some crazy stuff. Um, and the paramedics know it. Uh, but they're, they're in a position where, well, it's the medical director who wants to give this particular drug in cardiac rest or, you know, wants to give uh, thiamine to everybody. And, and they know it's not evidence-based, but they continue to practice secondhand substandard medicine, you know, uh, when they all want to push the system and, and push the patient care better. You know, I, I find it interesting or I find it telling that you, you welcome paramedics uh, questioning you and, and asking clinical questions and seeking feedback. I think that's the mark of a, a good system uh, in, where, in which paramedics are empowered to do that, the mark of a good medical director to answer those questions. Um, you know, that's, I had a similar, uh, or I had a similar encounter just recently speaking with one of our, our local docs. Uh, I asked him uh, on the nitro question. You know, I had given the patient a good deal of nitro, but still within our protocols, and it just wasn't all that effective. Uh, and I asked him, um, uh, how do you feel about higher doses of nitro in, in that situation? And, and his first question to me was, well, why would you want to do that? Um, and it wasn't disagreeing with me. He wanted to know what my rationale and my thinking was, rather than just uh, a knee-jerk, well, maybe a little more nitro might be uh, better. Um, he wanted to know my clinical reason, and I told him, you know, I, I, I think she needed afterload reduction, and our doses are not really sufficient for that, and her blood pressure uh, was able to stand it, and, um, you know, I feel feel comfortable titrating uh, nitro to our symptom relief and, and maintaining a decent blood pressure. And he said, well, absolutely. If it's clinically appropriate, you're, you know, I, I would support you in doing that. But the thing was, you know, he wasn't questioning me being, having the temerity to, to uh question a doctor, uh, he wanted to know that I knew what I was talking about and I had a reason for asking. And, and I, I think you'll find that, uh, or medics would find that if they were to do that, that's the, the, the more common response they get from medical control physicians. Scratch a, scratch a good doctor and you'll find a frustrated teacher underneath. Well, that's what doctor means, you know, really. I mean, I was in yeah. trauma. We had, I had a couple of brutal trauma shifts this week, and, and, and one of the crews came in, and, and we've had fentanyl out here, I guess, for a year or so. And, and you know, this patient, pretty significant trauma, came in really comfortable with fentanyl. And, and the paramed- one of the paramedics came up and, and, you know, said, thank you for, you know, pushing to get fentanyl on the ambulances out here. I really didn't know much. It's more related to the, uh, the inability to get the drug. But, you know, they always follow that we've made this step. We've gotten fentanyl, we've gotten ketamine, we've gotten whatever. You know, 
what can we do next? You know, whether it's, you know, rapid sequence induction or something. And my argument is, is you know, let's, let's look at it and see whether it's going to make the patient better and how much it's going to cost, and then we can fight the battles. Uh, the medical community can be fought. Believe me, we, we fought out here getting rid of those damn backboards, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and we were heretics for about the first two months until everybody, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, we can, like, put them on a regular bed. We, you know, we don't need 15 nurses to take care of 15 <laughs> patients. And, you know, so, uh, you know, it, uh, it's just, it's just how, how it evolves, I think. Let me ask you this question, Dr. Bledsoe. So being a, a, a premier educator, and uh, I, I feel that, and, and certainly trained by a lot of the books that you've written, because you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I found very interesting. You talked about the Visio, and you talked about the, the linear process. In your opinion, do we need to start thinking about how we're training paramedics initially? Because you're absolutely right. We teach them if A happens, do B. If B happens, do C. And then when we hire them as chiefs, I'm looking for critical thinkers, but we're not training them. Yeah. Ooh, Mr. Cotter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that. It, emergency medicine, particularly, is nonlinear. I mean, at any given point, you know, we're juggling for us, you know, 15 patients, watching two residents. You know, we've got, uh, you know, nurses coming to call us, the EKGs being handed to us. And it's not that much different for the paramedic. You know, certainly the, maybe the magnitude of it is. And, you know, the, you want them. To multitask, you want them to to not wait on on step C before they go to step E, the nitro or whatever it is that we're talking about, you know. But it comes down to this, and 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 I've had the opportunity now to train medical students and paramedic students and, and young doctors, residents, and such. You know the the issue that and this this plays a lot into you know these these books, these paramedic books and such is that EMS in the fire service and, and police, public safety, tends to attract what we call visual learners, people who are pretty good at figuring things out for themselves. You know, you give them a model airplane, they're just going to take it out of the box and throw the instructions aside and try to figure out how to put it together. Whereas when we see with, with the medical students who come through the college pathway to go to medical school, they're very much analytical. In other words, they they you know have to learn the basic information, and then they're they're pretty careful how they they proceed in terms of uh, their patient care and their procedures. And I think with EMS, we kind of have to uh, push the paramedics to be a little more analytical, and we have to push the doctors to be a little less less analytical. You know, if you if you talk to over the years these books, these um, these paramedic books, the things that people have trouble with are drug dosage calculations, anytime you put any sort of chemical formula in there, and then pathophysiology. They do great at skills, but to get where we need to get, you need to understand these disease processes. You understand why Kelly is adamant about you know transdermal nitro or or the role of nitro and preload reduction for heart failure. You need to understand why the crazy guy Bledsoe was pushing so hard to get rid of backboards. And, and not just because your medical director tells you so, but because the prevailing scientific literature tells you so. We do so many things in EMS and to a lesser degree emergency medicine that are, uh, that are just contrary to the prevailing science, and we do it because, well, that's all, always the way it's been done, or that's what my medical director says to do. Well, 
I want that medic to question me. Why did you uh, Why did you pronounce it patient? Or why did you uh, want me to give fentanyl instead of uh, dilaudid or whatever? And, and when you explain it to them, the next time they make that decision themselves. And the patient gets to care without having to call or, or, or deal with some sort of protocol variance. You know, Chris, your, your statement about uh, the, the algorithmic approach to thinking um, and, and Brian's concurrence on it, you know, that, that, that reflects something I've been saying for, for quite some time. Is we, we all talk about the value of critical thinking and clinical decision-making in EMS, yet not only does our curriculum not augment those skills or not teach those skills, we systematically train it out of people in paramedic school. We, with this, this heavy reliance on, on memorization of formulas and dosages and drug sheets and, and algorithms and protocols, uh, and, and what Brian referred to as this linear thought process applied to a situation that is anything but linear. You know, Brian, I, I remember, still remember uh, from a lecture of yours uh, quite some time back about uh, levels of competency of, of providers. It was the, the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition. Right. And, you know, in it, you talked about the different levels of providers, the novices, the competent providers, the expert practitioners. You know, at first glance, you think that, okay, our EMTs are our novices, and our seasoned EMTs and advanced EMTs are our competent practitioners, and our paramedics are should be our expert practitioners. But in practice, actually what happens is we crank out a paramedic, and he's yet another novice practitioner with an advanced skill set. We just don't do a good job of teaching these guys the, the critical thinking skills uh, or encouraging critical thinking uh, that they so desperately need. So my question to you is, is what would you suggest to uh, to that new novice provider who still thinks that the protocols of the Bible and the medical director is God, as he starts to mature as a provider and starts to question that dogma, uh, how, do you, how do you go about as a paramedic approaching your medical director and, and seeking out greater wisdom? Well, you know, unfortunately, it's personality-driven, but, you know, well, you know, I'm 60 years old now, and, and um, you know, I, a lot of the medical directors, you know, were paramedics that worked with me, and, and there's a whole new crop of, of, of young medical directors who spent their time in the field, like a lot of us did, that'll make that difference. But kind of back to the question, I, I think that, that every, every case, every call you can learn something from. And and it's important to pay attention to what happens once you get to the hospital, not just when you you know move them off the, the stretcher, uh, you know, and and in, in call and follow up, you know, ask ask questions. But it, uh, then again, it comes back to to the education, you know, uh, brick and mortar buildings certainly play a role in, in modern education, but innovation is hindered by that. You know, it really does not matter to the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Uh, how we train our residents to the six core competencies. Um, you know, you can do it through simulation, you can do it through cadavers, you can do it through classroom lectures, you can do it through clinical teaching. Um, you know, you know, why can't we apply that to EMS? It, it, we use more simulation, use more, you know, non-brick-and-mortar buildings, online education, these sorts of things, but, but make things clinically relevant. You know, it, it, when I went to medical school in Fort Worth, we, uh, we were following the Harvard and the McMaster model where they tried to integrate, integrate clinical problem solving early into the curriculum. You were giving these kind of almost ridiculous clinical problems and you had to gather data 
and and then look at the data and make a decision, almost almost a mathematical model. Uh, it it kind of hindered us with standardized testing, but when we got in the clinical arena, we we're actually ahead of some of the other medical schools in Texas. So I think we we have to change the whole way we we approach you know paramedic clinical education. Now when it comes to guidelines, you know why do we have to put in a protocol what the signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure are? Is that not in every paramedic book out there and every EMT book? So why not say? you know, suspect congestive heart failure. You don't need to list rails and write heart failure signs and symptoms and all other crap. You know, um, consider oxygen. Consider uh, uh, preload reduction with a nitrate. If You know, you don't even, shouldn't even have to warn to, uh, to watch some blood pressure. That should be intuitive, but certainly you can throw that in. Consider CPAP. Consider, you know, an ACE inhibitor for afterload reduction. You know, all these things and, and, and leave it up to the judgment of the paramedic. Okay, well, CPAP's all I need. They're good. They're going to the hospital. CPAP, a little nitro. You know, oh, we got a two-hour transport in Texas or northern Nevada. And, you know, well, I think I will go ahead and, you know, give the, the nitrates, maybe consider IV nitrates, maybe even give them a little Lasix, you know, after um, uh, these other drugs. And then look at the outcome at the end. And it's not so much about following the algorithm, but just making the patient better. I think that one of the things that you bring out, and as I'm thinking about this, is, is how we creating this, you know, this clinician more than, you know, the term paramedic, you know, that the students that are coming out of school today, they have a lot of knowledge. And, and now trying to be able to move that into experience that allows them to, to think about the pathophysiology and to think about, you know, the treatment modalities. And, you know, we had this conversation last week on the show, uh, Doc, when we were talking about blood pressures, and we just take a blood pressure, but do we really understand what the blood pressure means when we get the systolic and diastolic and, you know, what's the relation of vasoconstriction and, per, you know, peripheral vascular, whatever it is? And I don't know that we think that enough. I just think we go in and we, uh, you know, you know, put our overalls on and we get the paintbrush and we just start painting over it. And, and we really have to get to a point where we're actually thinking and, and using that knowledge to create a better practice. Yeah, I mean, we had this uh, discussion recently with one of my medics. Um, you know, American Heart Association and everything you've ever read since you were in the cradle has talked about how bad high blood pressure is. And we had a crew actually bring a patient in by lights and siren with a blood pressure of 240 over 149. Okay, uh, I went in and saw the patient. Spent about five minutes talking with her, wrote her a script for her blood pressure medicine she's not taking, and discharged her. Didn't do any labs, EKGs, or anything else. And the crew was somewhat alarmed by that. And, 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 and so I took time to explain, you know, this is a chronic disease. You know, lowering the blood pressure now could be harmful for her, and I explained why. You know, she's not taking her medicines. That's a major issue. It's a social issue. And, and to... To change something as drastic as, you know, blood pressure kills versus the ER doctor didn't even, you know, do any lab work and, and sent the patient out is a big jump. But once I explained it to him, you know, and, and, and it talked about the ASEP policy on that and the uh, American Family Physician policy on that and the Heart Association, they, they understood. They said, well, you know, why are these doctors calling us to transport these high blood pressures to the ER? And I said, you know, well, our influence only goes as far as you guys, you know. It doesn't always go to the ER, even though we work on that, too, to the, to the private doctors. 
I'd like to make note of the fact that, that uh, Brian, our, our esteemed expert, is agreeing more with my position than with your position, Chris. I, I think you'd have mm-hmm. to... Uh, I knew that was coming. That. Brian, I knew that was coming. I was, I was right. You were wrong. I don't know that um, I'd go that far, but... Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, I, I think that we got a long way to go before before EMS providers are considered clinicians. Uh, we've got some 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 bright spots in the country where in systems where they are clinicians and, and that sort of thinking is encouraged. But as a professional, we have a long way to go. And and, and it's not just uh, seeking out the medical directors um, and, and oversight physicians who are who are going to encourage that sort of thing and and, and uh, give us the freedom to to practice our our clinical. Uh, uh, to utilize our clinical judgment, it's also going to have to be an organizational change because right now, you know, who are the people that, that overlook your, your charts and do QA and QI? Um, by and large, they're the people at, at a particular agency that, that follow the protocols really, really well. Um, and, and that's what their, their measure of, of being a good paramedic is, by how stringently you follow those protocols. So the, the change is going to have to be, you know, uh, uh, through the entire agency, not just from the, uh, the relationship with the medical director and the, uh, the, the paramedics they oversee. Everybody's thinking is going to have to change. I don't know how long that'll, that'll take, but I would like to see it happen before I get out of EMS. Sure. And I think that one of the things that you have to think about is that there's a lot of transition that's going on. And uh, I don't know if you had a, a comment to Kelly's question, uh, Doc, but let me go ahead and, and give you mine if you wanted to uh, add on and then answer. And we kind of had a little bit of discussion about community paramedicine. And, and I think that one of the thought is that, you know, the patient that you just brought in, this could have been a great opportunity for them to be treated at home and, and uh, hooked up, whatever, however that would have worked. So my question to you is, if you think about the future of, of this transition, can you share with us a little bit uh, your opinion of where this could kind of take us in the future? Well, I mean, there, there's several things that to really consider. First of all, we really got to look at the education model. You know, you know, the Department of Transportation is the curriculum for EMS in the United States. You know, um, uh, that, that makes no sense. The other thing, we're going to have to ask some hard questions. Does everybody doing pre-hospital care need to be a paramedic? If you look at Seattle Fire that, you know, has really good numbers in terms of resuscitation rates, they only have, I think, 80 or 90 paramedics in the whole system. You know, they run a tiered system, and um, uh, I I think that, you know, eventually we're going to have some sort of uh, uh, situation where, you know, we have multiple levels besides what they typically call BLS and ALS. You'll have... You know, good first response. You'll you know need to get away from like the the two level model ALS BLS. We need to probably most of the work can be handled by you know EMTs with skills beyond what they typically have. Paramedics uh, should be more specialized, much like they do in Australia. Then you can go beyond that with your clinical support officers, your community paramedics, and such. Um, I, I, I we we're just running into issues trying to maintain competency. With such a large number of paramedics, given the number of calls out there and the number of ALS procedures, and it's just not—it's just not um, EMS. I mean, every time you know these pedi- like our, our our trauma center is also a pediatric trauma center. Every time you know accreditation comes up and they're looking for numbers and procedures, you know all these pediatric trauma centers are are are, uh, are in trouble because. 
you know, uh, injury prevention has been good. Airbags, you know, car safety seats, bicycle safety helmets, you know, that we maybe don't need as many things as, as we have. I know that's kind of, you know, sound like a heretic saying, it, especially so in textbooks, but not everybody on every ambulance probably needs to be a paramedic. Yeah. You know, my sweetheart refers to uh, paramedics as the, the Navy SEALs of uh, emergency medical services. They ought to be few in number, exquisitely well-trained, and only called in for the toughest of missions. And, and everyone, everything else should be able to be handled by the, uh, the regular troops, the EMTs. Yeah, you, you, they need more. And actually, that's a talk I'm starting next year. I haven't finished developing yet for uh, EMS Today up in Baltimore, uh, is that we've got to break down this idea that there's BLS and there are EMTs, there's ALS that are paramedics. You know, uh, a uh, you know a kid who's three years old can assemble a nebulizer and give them themselves their albuterol treatment without any problem, you know, and, and half the damn population uses CPAP. You know why can't an EMT do yeah. that? And 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 the idea that EMTs can't administer drugs or, you know, do some of these things that have typically been in the domain of paramedics have, uh, you know, can certainly be done. And then on the other side, you know, taking the paramedics to a new level in terms of of some of the things Chris is talking about: pre-hospital administration of antibiotics, early identification and treatment of sepsis, a little more complicated pharmacologic management. Because I tell you. You know, this Obamacare stuff has not impacted ER visits. And so the more things that can, can happen in the pre-hospital setting to turn the patient in the right direction toward hospital discharge or a decision to admit makes my life a lot easier. In Vegas, transport times are 15 minutes. Generally, I could care less whether the paramedics give the COPD asthmatic 125 milligrams of solumedrol as the medical director. But as the receiving ER physician, that patient got that drug probably 45 minutes quicker than my patient would have got it by the time I put it. They got registered, I put it in the computer, and the nurse gets it out of the Pixis. And so we've got to, uh, again, break down the ALS-BLS barriers. We've got to, got to expand the scope of both EMTs and paramedics. And we've got to blur the line between, you know, the emergency department and the field. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Brian, the first thing you mentioned was, was education needs to change. How do you feel about the, the shift from the curriculum-based, the proscriptive cur curriculum-based education to the EMS educational standards? Step in the right direction? Is it something that's going to change the way EMS, is, is, uh, EMS education is done and we just have to wait? wait for it to, to shake out that way, or, or does something more need to be done? Well, I, I think it needs to, to be more driven. I think the, the Department of Transportation needs to get out of it. It, it should be pretty much driven by, by EMS personnel with some physician involvement. There's, there's enough um, EMTs and paramedics out there now with advanced degrees and education are much smarter about education than me and most physicians. So, I think that's where it's got to go, and I, I think that, you know, these barriers to online education, total, I mean, for part of the education to uh, 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 to the just the dogma that's, that's established, uh, you know, you, you ask paramedics to, to rank the, the most important things they do. This was done several years ago. I forget where the study was done. Everything that they ranked most important was procedural, uh, intubation, uh, IV access, heck. 80% of the IV lines we get are never used for anything. So, you know, if we get it, people recognize that assessment, making the right diagnosis, getting into the right shop, um, 
you know, is is the uh, is is the best. I actually had a, a crew the other day uh, picked up a, a guy that that called me aside because they were both wearing masks, which was kind of unusual. He goes, Doc, I'm not sure, but I just got a suspicion this guy may be, may have TB. And I heard him cough and, and looked at him. He was a homeless dude, and sure enough, he was right. He protected that whole damn emergency department from exposure to this guy because we went right to a negative pressure room. So that's where we, we've got it. We've got to uh, uh, enable the paramedics to speak freely, to have a say at the table in the House of Medicine, and to be paid appropriately for it. Yeah, that, that's one of the that's the biggest indictment of EMS that, that you can you can state is that we, we define ourselves by a skill set and not a body of knowledge, and that needs to change. Yeah, and name another profession that does that besides the welders, you know, or the, or the Harley mechanics. Or, you well, know, you need to compare apples to apples because welders make a hell of a lot more than we do. Oh, my goodness. Well, you better, I mean, look at respiratory <laughs> therapists. They, well, I run ventilators, I do blood gases, I give nebulizer treatments. That's what I do. No, they're respiratory care professionals, and, and a paramedic is a... a uh, uh, you know, emergency care professional. It, it still hurts me. We don't use paramedics in the ER here at UMC because of reasons I don't know. But, you know, I still work some back in Texas, and we have some really, really, really good paramedics in the ER at the, at the hospital in Mansfield Methodist, where I, where I work part-time. Uh, and, and there, because they needed to get off the ambulances, and, and they're start IVs, and, you know, but they, they don't let them intubate. They, they, they're limited to the medications, you know, and it hurts me, having been a paramedic, to to see that. And I'm not making the argument paramedics are the same as nurses. There, there's certainly differences. But, you know, why just, you know, you, you go a foot outside the door, they can do things, and a foot inside the door, they can't. makes no sense to me. Dr. Brian Bledsoe, it's always great uh, to chat with you. I always learn some great things. And uh, promises you'll come back again and visit with us. Sure, I love it. Kelly, well, I guess it's time to put the wraps on another show, and uh, I guess yeah. you were—I guess you were right. Uh, just from this standpoint, uh, once uh, Doctor Bloodsoe's gone, I'm going to say you're wrong again. But right now, I'll give you kudos for being right. But uh, why don't you go how ahead did, and close? How did that taste coming out of your mouth? Like vinegar, like vinegar. <laughs> so, but uh, why don't you go ahead and put the wraps on the show? Let's go, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'd like to thank our guest uh, for this episode, Doctor Brian Bloodsoe. Thanks for participating. And we'd like to hear your comments, concerns, suggestions, questions. Email us at the show at ems1.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, it's co-host Chris Cavallaro. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And we'll catch you guys next week.